Welcome to Data Myths Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Melinda Gagnon. So, a little about us. I'm interested in how tech helps us improve our lives. I have 20 years experience in digital communications. I'm an ex-Googler and now help launch new companies and products. And I've spent 20 plus years evangelizing tech at some of the world's largest companies. Whether you're a datafile or a dataphobe, we have something for you on this podcast. So get ready. Let's go. Hey, Brian. How's it going? It's pretty awesome. I've got a little bit of a scratchy throat today. So this episode is going to be, I think, unofficially sponsored by Ricola, the secret uh, of the Swiss mountains. Oh, nice. Good. It's always it's always good to have a, you know, JK sponsor. Why not? Yeah, I mean, Jack Daniels um, refused to let me, you know, kind of have a sponsorship. So I figured I'd go with Ricola. Well, they both could make your voice smooth. So, you know, you <laughs> can have that going for you. Exactly. <laughs> next so. next episode will be spon- unofficially sponsored by Jack Daniels. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So, so, um, so we yeah, have that to look forward to. Let's work on that. Let's uh, <laughs> let's try to figure that out. Uh, I am just kidding. But uh, so what are we going to talk about today? I know you you, uh, you kind of have a few thoughts. Yeah, just a few. So let's see. What was this particular thought about? So so basically one of the things that, you know, we've been seeing and talking a lot about is just the fact that we're creating a lot of information at a very rapid pace. Right. So that is a very true statement. Yes. So, I mean, we've seen like 90 percent of data in the world was created in the last couple of years. Amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, I luckily I was kind of at the epicenter of of that working at the world's largest storage company. So can you name this world's largest storage company? Yeah. So Western Digital SanDisk. uh, I ran engineering there. So um, had a decent finger on my on the pulse of uh, how fast data was uh, was expanding so definitely yeah. something near and dear to my heart yeah yeah and and so when we kind of think about what that means to us overall as kind of a society and, and culture and this is something that I always like to to think about because my background is is you know a lot of um, humanities and political science and all that all that good stuff is how are we looking back on that information, how are we making sense of it all? And um, just how do we kind of wrangle all of it, really? Wrangle it? What do you mean? Yeah, like how do we make sense out of all of this information to make it meaningful to us? Because it really matters to be able to look back on the information that we create in order to understand our past, to understand why things happen the way they happened. So if we think of all this digital information that's being created, like how do we make sense out of all of it? And how do we look back Uh, to study it and make sense out of like where we've been and where we're going? So you're saying that we need an internet pyramid. An internet pyramid? Yeah. To kind of capture all of the uh, signs of the times and, uh, you know, that's... That's kind of what that was, right? They, yeah, they well, carved on the walls of it and it became a huge archaeological dig later on. Well, sure. It, yeah, that's a good way, to, good way to put it. So, you know, we have kind of two things going on. We've got a ton of information being created and it's being created in a format that's kind of ephemeral, right? It can disappear. So if we think of like websites, you create a website, it's a lot of information there. You can shut it down. 
you can change it. News articles, right, that aren't in print. We're moving purely online. Parallel realities with bits and bytes doing things differently for different people like the new Delta stuff. Right. Yeah. Going back to the CES episode. Absolutely. And that's a whole different kind of wrinkle in all of this when you have dynamic content being served. Yeah. How do we capture that? Right. So this is a big question on how do we kind of understand our history, essentially, when we're moving to this digital format. So I guess my question is, what's in it for me? Why would we want to know this stuff? Right. Because most people probably don't. Most people might not even care. They're just like, where are my pictures? How are they backed up? Um, If I keep paying the $9 a month, are they going to be there for how long? Yeah. So I think there are really two, two parts of this. So one is the cultural significance, the kind of historical record of all the information that we generate, meaning all the information being the publicly accessible information, right? So, ah, so okay. news articles, uh, TV programs, websites, publicly accessible information that once that changes, it's not just like gone forever or once it airs, it's not gone forever, right? So okay. that's one, one thing. And then the second part that you brought up, also super important for individuals to be able to archive store their personal information for their own use because yeah of course like I don't want my personal photos my you know just writing that I have on my computer that shouldn't be archived somewhere else that needs to be just accessed by me right no that makes sense so you're talking then about really just like cultural society, cultural things. So meaning stuff that would have ended up in the the library of Congress, for instance. Bingo. Bingo. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. How are ideas, companies, um, events? How, how is that? Where is that recorded? How is it recorded? So we can look back and, and understand that. So it doesn't just disappear. It's important. Okay. That makes sense. So now, would something like the Wayback Machine that we've talked about in a few past episodes, is that what you're actually referring to here? Because you did say the internet and web pages and all yeah. that. Is that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a big part of it. And 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 just as a refresher for, for um, you know, basically the, the Wayback Machine is, a, is a, a service where you can basically plug in a website and you can see the various iterations of it over time. So it stores past versions of a website. And the way this all came about is actually, I think, pretty interesting because one, it just shows how companies evolve over time and ideas evolve over time. And it also is serving a huge need and there's really no other service that's doing the work that this is doing um, in such a such a massive scale. So, so yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. So the the thing that I find really interesting about the Wayback Machine, first of all, the first website I ever built, or one of the first that I ever built commercially, was actually just on the Wayback Machine. Barely made it. I think it was was it ninety eight? Ninety six. It started. 
that was the year that uh, they started cashing pages. So congratulations. Exactly. <laughs> it was well, the first year. Well, and when I said eh, just barely, it was actually a little bit before that. So it captured, you know, kind of a few evolutions down. So it still cashed it. That's cool. Um, the other thing I found really interesting is that in looking into the Wayback Machine, they started cashing for five years before they told anybody. Yeah. And I think that is incredibly interesting. Uh, it's kind of that time capsule, you know, that you buried with your uh, your elementary school class. and You wait until you're a senior kind of thing. Really, really cool. Um, you know, and I think you probably have some more insight in that because I know you've really like read a lot about that. So I'd love to learn more. Well, and this is this is part of, of how I find this evolution uh, pretty interesting. So in 96, a company called Alexa was founded and it was founded by Brewster Kale and Bruce Gallat. And basically what they set out to do was crawl websites and they created a platform to basically understand web content analytics. And there was also a, a, a toolbar at one point that kind of suggested new pages and, and helped with assist search engines. But it was one of those annoying toolbars back in the day that was like borderline. I'm a virus. Yes. It, well, well, it was, it has been flagged. It was flagged multiple times by being, you know, maybe like adware or, you know, unwanted additional, you know, service and tracking. So the, the bar was kind of, a. It was low back then. Well, yeah, the bar, yeah, the bar was low, but the bar itself too um, was phased out after a while. So now Alexa to this day still exists as a web analytics company, right? But back when it started in 96, it started crawling these web pages and, and caching them. So that's when this activity really started and roll the clock forward to 99, Alexa gets acquired by guess who? I'm going to go with Amazon for 200. Mm, you know, maybe that's a, yeah, that's a relevant word. Yeah. They get acquired by Amazon, 250 million in stock, Amazon stock. Well, I think they did okay. I think so. Well, I think they really did because now Bruce, the founder runs a nonprofit. Excellent. That's yes. good. He's giving it back. Exactly. Pay it back. And this nonprofit is the Internet Archive, which owns the Wayback Machine. And it is been doing this massive, massive undertaking of archiving. Their goal is all of the information across the Internet. I mean, that's a fairly audacious goal. But I mean, it, it is. But it's really, really neat because I've spent quite a bit of time on it and I've gone back to companies and startups that I've worked with over the years. And it's just, it really is mind blowing to go back in time and look at the stuff that just disappears, right? Because we've been in a society or a digital society where we write some new code today, we do a push and, you know, merge it out in the, in the, the stream, right? And the stuff kind of goes away. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's really upward. interesting. And, you know, and to think about how like this Alexa company has, you know, infused into Amazon. So, you know, anybody who's looking at who's crawling their website, you know, I remember like just 
what was it, a year ago or so, we were seeing Amazon, Amazon, Amazon hitting our website. Well, that's what it is. You know, they're still crawling, crawling pages and, and doing what they do for this Alexa web analytics platform. And, and of course, you can't help but say, oh, hmm, Alexa, did that have any impact on, on the name for the voice assistant? And, you know, basically what the story is about how do they name Alexa? They said, well, you know, the consonant X is, is a really great hard consonant. So that will help to trigger the voice assistant. And they mentioned the same story about naming that the original company Alexa had, that it's basically a nod to the library of Alexandria that had the biggest repository of knowledge in the ancient world. So it all comes back Very to that idea. Yeah. So this is all based on this, this idea of we need to assemble the world's information, preserve it, and make it accessible. And, the, and the, the, uh, mission of the internet archive is to provide universal access to all knowledge. So I'm going to throw a wrinkle in it. Oh boy. Copyright. <laughs> yeah. Right. It gonna, is a wrinkle. I'm going to throw another wrinkle in it. Acceptable use policy of someone's website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could technically be in violation. In fact, I know most anybody's corporate website at this point has something in there that talks about not making copies, not downloading st- you know, information, yes. that they own the information. Yeah. So a lot of people have expressed discontent um, over copyright, questioning that. A lot of websites in their terms of use have something that says, you know, this information cannot be used for commercial purposes. So that isn't really a problem here because it is a, it's a nonprofit. It's serving a public good. They're not, they're not getting paid for that information, but the copyright argument certainly has been brought up around this. And where are we at on it? Basically, sites are are still indexed if they're publicly, if they're they're able to be publicly crawled. And, you know, there is a way that you can have your site not crawled. And there's also debate around that because, you know, I guess it, it is the question of, well, should we be able to preserve this information? Is it better for the good of society um, or do content creators have the right to to refuse that? So like Facebook, for example, uh, they haven't been archived since 2011. Interesting. You know? is, that, and is that because they're a walled garden, basically? You no, know, I couldn't find why. Huh. <laughs> so that's a really good question. If anyone knows why, I would love to hear about it. And, um, you know, and granted, of course, you're not crawling and archiving um, private information, but if someone has a publicly accessible page, why not? It's public. Yeah, I know. I know with Instagram specifically, there are a ton of sites that basically syndicate IG. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that stuff's archived somewhere else. Right. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, these are these are great questions, and you know, basically the importance of this work, I mean, is, is really clear. The Library of Congress has received a ton of information from this archive. Uh, in 98, they got like two terabytes of, 
of data. Which that in from itself, the archive. that in itself makes me laugh. Like two terabytes. That was a lot of data. In well, 1998. this was 98. Yeah, exactly. In yeah, context. It, to put it in context, in 1998, I'm going to guess in 1996, I remember like an eight gigabyte hard drive was big. So yeah, that's a lot of data. So that was a big deal. That was a huge deal. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and in terms of, of what they're recording today, I mean, of course, websites is one, but they also focus on like what they call like ephemeral media, right? So it, it airs and it goes away. So uh, the, the Internet Archive is also archiving television programs. Um, they're also doing a lot with digitizing print books, which is important. So, you know, this is the type of the type of work that they're doing. So this is preserved and people have access to it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, and it's also worth thinking about too, this is one organization that's doing it. One organization that's deciding what's important to archive and what's not and where that line is. And that's also kind of interesting to think about. Well, here's the other thing too. So when you talk about, you know, exclusion of being basically crawled, that's the robots.txt that you stick on your website and, you know, you put in information in there whether or not you want it crawled or not. That's not, that's like a recommendation. There's nothing to say that something else doesn't come along that doesn't recognize that and just archives it anyway. Yeah, it's not, yeah, as you said, it's not like a uh, a hard barrier that the You're, crawler cannot pass. It's yeah. just like, nope, please don't but you can. Right. So. And, and this is also something, these archives is kind of a case in point that shows how important it is. Just two years ago, a website was pulled off of the archives and actually used in a court case where um, this guy basically had put malware on a bunch of, bunch of computers and um, they were trying to, of course, prove that it was him. And they pulled up a website and it was admissible in court as proof. So now we have legal precedent that the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, the information that's stored here is a record. It's a type of official record. Well, so on that point, I was actually recently working with a startup, made some changes on our website spoke at a Y Combinator event and one of the founders maybe not so cleverly talked to one of the competitors. And then within the very next day, a lot of the wording on the website was exactly the same as what we had just spoken about. I went on the Wayback Machine and could actually see exactly what it was and what it got changed to. And there were places where they just blatantly copied it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there would be no way it would be a, he said, she said thing. If, if you couldn't look back and find that. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't really press the issue. It wasn't right. worth it. So. Right. Right. But you know, it just shows like, yeah, this is important. And you know, are we, first of all, are we doing this in the right mm. way? Who's thinking about this? Who are the kind of who holds the keys to the castle essentially? Exactly. So, 
No, that it totally makes sense. And I mean, and I think that is just such a small little sliver of what's getting archived. Right. And if you think about sort of the technology and and everything around this, it's it's huge. I mean, there is video archives. There are now audio archives. Almost every digital you know, recording or voicemail is now getting read in. You've got different languages with things like, you know, Duolingo. They are recording people's voices and like how you say, you know, different words in other languages. All of that stuff is getting archived and uh, on the digital front. So uh, really, really interesting. And I think, you know, even uh, even the presidency, I mean, they are recording more stuff than they ever did. And we're starting to run into some of these problems that come from the level of archiving that we indeed are doing. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so. So, yeah. So it's like, you know, libraries, maybe we don't think libraries are cool, but it's really pretty important. I saw a stat on libraries yesterday. Actually, more people are going to public libraries now than they are going to movie theaters. What? Exactly. Crazy, right? I mean, we just talked all about streaming. I think movie theaters are, um, unless you're doing something really cool like IMAX or 3D or, you know, seats that shoot water in your face or... So 4D stuff. 4D. Yeah. Yeah. 4D really threw me for a loop. I had no idea what I was getting into when I went to my first 4D movie. But anyway, unless you're doing something really cool like that... What does a movie theater have to offer these days? I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, and let's, but let's anyway, go back. I yeah, I, I digress this. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> no worries. So, okay. Where do you want to go from here? So, so we talked about kind of the cultural, legal significance of this idea of, of recording in a reliable, accessible way, like all this information. So how does it actually work? Because if you think about it, so we've, we're trying to, store, you know, and, and archive digital information. So it's always there for us. We're also digitizing print, but is it actually going to work? Are these digital archives actually going to stand the test of time and be accessible to us? Like, is it reliable? So you're asking two questions there, I think, and not maybe realizing it. And this is potentially, yeah. And this is one of those places where, There's a lot of misunderstanding, Mm -hmm. right? So the first question you asked is, is it going to be available? Yes. Right? So that's one question. The second question you asked is, is it always going to be there? Yes. Second question. So first question, availability. Second question, durability. Almost everybody gets these two drastically confused. So if you think about availability... Availability is if I go to the library any time of day where this archive is, can I get in, right? That's availability. The availability might be nine to five uh, except nights and weekends, right? That's availability. It's available, but it's only available during certain times. Is it durable? Yes, it's durable. They, you know, provided the building doesn't burn down. So that's... That's it. That makes sense. Now, here's another place of where you get durability. You get a printing press. You make more than one copy. You put it in a couple different libraries. Now the building burns down. 
sure, it might not be available when you go to the library in the morning and it's smoking pyre, but you can go to the... How sad. But don't despair because... Yeah, dun-dun-dun, durability and archiving. So you could go to the next town over and still get that book, right? So that's just a very basic, you know, um, difference between availability and durability. So now let's relate that to digital. So when we take that into the digital world, I have, you know, when I talk to IT professionals, a lot of times they're like, how many, how many nines of availability is nines? Nines. So 99% available is two nines of availability. 99.99% is four. 99.999. It's very hip. Five. Okay. Okay. So what that means is if I look over the course of a year, and that's typically the time frame you look, how many times is this thing going to have to be down for maintenance or whatever? It has nothing to do with whether or not when you turn it back on and you stop doing maintenance, it has to be there. Right. But it kind of talks about that. And so a lot of people just get this confused. Now insert things like AWS. AWS or Amazon Web Services for for you folks that don't live in that space um, is they have some archiving features, right? And they have archival quality storage, you know, let's call it storage uh, lakes, so to speak, where you could get up to 11 or 12 nines of durability. And so what does that mean in this case? What that means is that while it might take you a while to access that, so, you know, the availability might take a little bit because it might take three to five minutes or three to five hours for them to pull that out of a medium that you can get to, Durability-wise, it's highly durable because they copy it to many different data centers around the world, and it is basically crash-consistent. So there's a lot of math that goes behind it, but they're basically, if you took a, a Word file that was your resume, it would take that file, and as it was copying it into that medium, it would start to copy it to those three different places, and it would use some math and an algorithm to really split that up, you know, line by line, and it would shuffle it out like playing cards. And until that was all consistent on all of those different locations, it wouldn't act like it had actually been copied yet. Once that consistency happens, then that's fantastic. It's broken up into all kinds of different little pieces. If one of those little pieces were to break, meaning the hard drive that it's on happens to have a hardware failure, you're only losing a little fraction of a piece and it's recreatable by those other locations. So what is that called, that process, the shuffling of, or not shuffling, the doling out of playing cards? Well, so that's a great question. So a couple different things on a couple different, couple different ways. So let's, let's go back a number of years. So 10 years ago, Everything or almost everything was based on either what's called a file or a block operating system. And so what that means is most everybody has probably used Windows or probably used, you know, Mac. 
And so those both have file and folder structure. And most people, I think, I mean, that's that's how we store information, right? Well, I'm I'm going to correct correct that moving forward because we're not going to for too much longer. So, and I'll give you Get an ready. example. Get ready for the change, huh? It's it's already happened. Yeah. Right. So, and I'll give you examples. So, block based and file based operating systems or file systems, basically file, you name it, it gets a date stamped on it. It might get the type of file that it is. And that's about it. So if you don't name it really well, then that's going to be tough. And then you go and you stick it in a folder and let's say it's taxes 2019 and that's the name of the folder. And then you put the file taxes into that folder. If for some reason you accidentally drag that file out of that folder, it loses the fact that that was in the 2019 taxes. So hopefully somewhere in that file, you could kind of recreate the fact that that was indeed your 2019 taxes. Or don't lose those folders or you're going to be messed up. Well, exactly. But accidents happen where yes. maybe you drag and drop or you accidentally copy. Um, yeah, I mean, when I ate the impossible pork there, I dragged and dropped. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you right now. Oh, but uh, <laughs> sorry. It's a different drag and drop. Absolutely. Yep. Um, that was kind of more of a run and drop. But anyhow, anyhow uh, we have to keep it real here because these podcasts sometimes get a little <laughs> uh, little long in the tooth. Um, but yeah, so... So what happens with that is when you start to have a lot more files, when you start to have just this tremendous growth that we've seen of, of, of data, that methodology doesn't work that well anymore. And an example, if you've taken pictures and you've had a camera that isn't an iPhone or isn't an Android, everybody has seen the dreaded MVC or DVC-00010002 files that come off of a digital camera, right? And so you take all those files and you, and you put a cord into your computer and you copy them over and hopefully you put them in the right folder. We've all done it. It gets into a big you know, bucket of other folders. Next thing you know, pictures are basically the equivalent of a, a shoebox under your bed that got all mixed up. Yeah, and then you start having similar file names, and then you're wondering which file to keep and how to sort through it. Exactly. And, you know, hopefully whatever the date was on there might give you a hope. Uh, that's tough. Things like Adobe and other people came along with things like Lightroom and Adobe Bridge, and the sole purpose of those technologies were to literally take meta tags and let you start to organize things and put little meta tags or, you know, tags, so to speak, names, categories, onto individual files. So now, rather than just bringing that in, dumping it into a folder and hoping for the best or renaming every file, which is just impossible, now you're saying, okay, cool, all these ones that I'm importing from this memory card, these are all from Cousin Steve's wedding. Right. And Cousin Steve's wedding was in May of 2017 and it was in this location and it had Cousin Steve in it. And maybe there are other people. We'll get to that in a minute. All of that stuff. So that is meta tagging. 
right? And that started to become really important, especially to people that generated a ton of files and a ton of information. And so that's sort of where we are today. And that has, that's one piece of the problem of why we've had to change. So now let's kind of move into the next piece. And, and so I didn't talk about block file systems. All a block is, is a, it's a higher level than that. It is literally segmenting off a whole section of a disk drive. And let's just say from zero to 5,000 um, and all of the files that are on there, that's a block of data. I'm just going to super simplify that. That gets geeky real fast and we just don't need to go there. But again, it's just, it's about the same uh, for practical purposes of this conversation. So let's move forward. So now we've got things that are generating a tremendous amount of data. So Facebook, every single post that you put on Facebook is essentially a little article. Every single picture you put on Facebook is yet another picture. Every single post you put on Instagram is another object, right? And so all of these things, if they had to name that every single time, it would be impossible. So born was object-based storage. And so object-based storage is rather than giving it a name and a folder and having that structure to store stuff and organize it, everything gets a generated number. And that generated number or key is basically like me giving you a you know, security box key, right? And so you know how to get to it. You could share that key with someone else so that they could see the picture too. But it's a big, long number. And if you look at that big, long number, it doesn't probably mean a whole heck of a lot to you. And you could see this if you log into your Facebook and you start looking up in the, the URL, you know, the, the address, right? You'll start to see like a really long number that's, right. that's up in there when you start to like drill into things. That's an object, right? And you'll see like a bunch of those, those objects. So if it was just the objects, it would be a pretty miserable thing to navigate, but what happens with object-based storage is they've started to split the naming with the tagging. So not only is there an object and an object ID, but then there's also a meta tag database. So marry those two together, and now you have a really, really great database where you can have much, much more information. So unlike in a file structure with folders, where you're using the folders to kind of help organize stuff, now you use meta tags to organize stuff. So much like Adobe you know, Lightroom and Bridge and a number of other tools like that, you're now using those tags, and those tags are what help you actually organize stuff. Hashtags also help you organize stuff, right? So now you're starting to understand, right? Like meta tagging and object-based storage really, really helped with that portion of the file system starting to break, right? And so in terms of, of what we need to do to make sure that information is available and durable, really what, if someone said, how do I, how do I do this? So what, what would you recommend? So great next question. And I want to kind of cover the one other piece of why things broke or why things are in the process of breaking. Yeah. So because data has been growing so fast, 
we built stuff into hardware so that if a hard drive fails, which they do, we know that they break, you know, most of the time they have a mean time between failure of a million to three million hours, right? That's a long time, but that's collectively over many, 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 many objects. So hard drives fail, they break, everybody's probably had an, you know, an effect of one of those. So we built methods so that you could take a bunch of hard drives and do what we call a stripe, right? And a stripe with parity. Fancy word for if the stripe broke, if I took three disks and one of those disks was to fail, it's failed. But Is this I, going back to our deck of cards? Yes, but hold on. <laughs> so, so one of those three fails with parity that means there's enough information on the two other disks that I can recreate that disk. So that is that data is durable, okay? And it takes time for that to happen because while all the new information is coming in, in the background, that hard drive and the hardware to do it has to take time out of writing that information and recreating that other information and copying it over to that disk. So you get a huge performance hit, okay? So now that's a really small example. Now let's get into like Wayback Machine. So in 2016, Wayback Machine was generating something to the effect of 15 to 20 petabytes a year in data. That's a lot, that's a, that's yeah. a really lot. So now when you start having disk failures, which happen, at that level, if you were using RAID, which is basically, excuse me, redundant array of inexpensive disks, which means putting a bunch of disks together, there's a bunch of different configurations. What you a can nice do. acronym. Absolutely. So what happens is as those things start to fail, because the data has gotten so big, because the disk drives have gotten so big, they don't have time to recreate that parity. They don't have time to make sure it's durable again before the next disk failure happens. And so as a result of that, when you start to get over six terabyte drives, which almost everything comes with today, it becomes really difficult for that subsystem to keep up. Now this is way geeky. I could talk way more in depth about this, but we'll lose just about everybody. Um, but this is where durability comes in. So Object-based storage, one of the other great things that it was created for is object-based storage is not designed around one data center. It's designed around many, right? So the library burning down situation doesn't happen. So there's something called 3GO that most every object-based storage system is sort of predicated off of. And so what that means is very simply, like I said, when that file comes in, it gets created in three places and they, and you know, an algorithm breaks it up so that, you know, you don't have to wait for the whole file. It chunks it out. You know, they're actually called shards, um, which I know will make you nice. chuckle, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So basically those shards get spread out like a, a deck of cards across those three data centers. It could be more. Uh, and that means that there is literally a crash consistent or, or you know, a durable copy across the whole mix. That's why they can get to 11, 12, 15, 19 nines of availability. I mean, that or durability, excuse me. See, I even did it. Um, 
but yeah, so that's, that's really it. So from a durability perspective, Facebook, all of these platforms, they're built on object-based storage, Amazon built on object-based storage. So a lot of companies, this would have been too expensive for them to embark on a lot of these cloud providers. They've built their infrastructure on this. So you're kind of getting the benefits of this. So, so do you think that this is enough when we let, let's just say we have, you know, data center meltdown in multiple locations with our world's information? So is it enough? Are we, are we going to be able to access all of our quote unquote cultural artifacts? So the engineer in me would like to say availability wise, Probably no, not for a while if there's a serious problem, meaning probably the most serious thing that could happen would be some like electromagnetic pulse, you know, in the atmosphere or something that affected like a very wide, you know, broad range. Right. Um, Unless if stuff is offline in that situation and what we call air gapped, uh, that's going to be tough to recover from, you know, unless if something is in you know, basically a a degaussing cage or something like that, that's going to be tough, you know, but there are places that, that that's, that's the case. You know, there are old, um, old rocket launch, you know, ICBM places that have turned into data centers now that are way deep in the earth. That might be okay if there's a data center there, but so, so let's hope that our internet archive is in a former ICB bunker. ICBM. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe sure. But (laughs) But here's the problem. You do get into the availability piece, right? Of like, if the whole rest of the internet, you can't get anywhere, there's probably not an interface where you could drive up to the gate and be like, I'm here for my data. Right. So the availability problem is going to probably be a bigger problem than the durability problem. So yeah. And I I think the bigger thing, all right, that's good. So the most important thing here, I think is durability because if it long as it's durable, then we can figure out a way to make it available. Yeah. So I mean, we're getting way deep into philosophy here and, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, national security. Um, but what I would say is I have a reasonable, you know, assertion that the stuff would be durable and available at some point if something really serious happened. Well, I'm going to sleep better tonight. I don't know about you. I tell you what, something that serious happens, I'm not going to be like, ah, shoot, you <laughs> shoot know, that, I, that article from CNN five years ago. I really wanted to go. <laughs> Where is that? I really wanted to go on the Wayback Machine and <laughs> see um, CNN's website from five years ago. So anyhow. Well, just I, I know we're making light, but I just want to say one of the first TV event coverages that they archived was was the September 11th uh, events. And, you know, when we think about stuff like that, it's just these this historical kind of events that happen that, you know, in the future and even now we'll want want to access and look back on. So, you know, we don't think much of it, but it is important and and we will all use it in some some fashion in our lives. So. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for putting together some good, thoughtful uh Thoughtful pieces uh, got my wheels turning a little bit, but looking forward, we can pick this up and talk about so much more, but thank you. Thank you for object-based storage. (laughs) I didn't create it, but uh, I will happily use it. So thank you. Yeah. Talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening. 
This episode is sponsored by Uprise Partners. Uprise launches startups and evolves established companies. Check it out at www.uprisepartners.com. Please like, subscribe, and share, and we'd love to hear from you. Give us a shout if you have a great idea that you want us to include. Just email us at hello at datamyths.com. Catch you next time.